This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hello, 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 and welcome, everybody. We're back. You're back for another session of Radcast Outdoors. Super excited to have you here. Super excited to be back in the studio. We've actually moved into the new studio where <laughs> it's been uh, crazy, but we're getting closer and closer to the end goal, right, Patrick? Yes, it, it's looking really good. We've got some lights. We've got a nice room, and now we just got to get everything else set up in here, but it's going to be awesome. And I know Patrick's schedule's been about as crazy as mine. So for our fellow listeners, we have episodes coming. We're getting them out there. Just bear with us till, uh, I don't know, 2024. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a little wild, but we're actually going to go to the Wyoming Bow Convention here pretty quick. And so we're going to have some episodes from there as well. And we'll be shelling them out. So you guys better be ready. We're going to have some amazing guests. And we have another amazing one today. Yeah, speaking of amazing guests, we uh, have Mike Kentner in the studio here with us today. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Doing well, man. It's good to have you on the podcast and get to spend some time with you. David made this connection, and so I'm excited to hear what you got to say. You've got a lot of cool things in your background. So I've been following Mike for a little bit and, and creeping on his social, right? Because I, <laughs> I get to live vicariously through him a little bit. I think he gets to hunt more than I do. So he's a fellow bow spider customer, and uh, yeah, I just reached out and He's a good Wyoming guy, so he figured he'd come in and, and give us a, a few moments of his time. So welcome, Mike. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Mike, thanks for coming. Thank you. So let's just get right into it. What started your outdoor journey? Where, where did you start? Who was your mentor? Um, really my father. I don't ever remember not being in the outdoors between hunting and fishing and camping and doing all that. We did that as a family the whole time I grew up. Started hunting. I think I started, got my first hunting license when I was six in Washington State. Uh, hunting birds and started big game hunting by the time I was eight or nine. Um, was always at that point really fascinated with taxidermy work um when i was a kid we didn't have any in our house it was something i always wanted so uh we didn't have the money so i just learned to do it myself i started a correspondence course in taxidermy then when i was 12 years old and uh, that was a long time ago and now you know i started bow hunting shortly after that i think i killed my first deer with a bow in 1984 or 85 and there's been many falls since then and uh, between fishing and hunting outdoors it's pretty much been my life when i'm not at work since i, I can remember kind of a do it all everywhere either fishing or hiking or camping and that's interesting that you gravitated towards archery so soon was there a reason why or did dad rifle hunt we rifle hunted when i was a kid uh then as we got into teenage years we always shot bows we always had bows that i can remember and uh, we kind of started gravitating towards archery hunting in washington at that time is when they were first converting over to you had to make a decision to either hunt with a bow or with a rifle and the seasons were significantly better for archery hunting at that time and so we just kind of gravitated into the archery hunting world at that time i started archery hunting back in the days when compound bows had actual cables for cables 
they weren't made out of strings. <laughs> the uh, original bear whitetail was still being sold on the shelf. The whitetail too, it just came out. I think my first bow was a PSE. I don't even remember what model PSE it was. Pete Shepley was a young man then. Okay. <laughs> it was a long time ago, but. Yeah, I've got to meet Pete a couple times and he's a great guy. And I started with PSE. Now I was a little later than you. We won't throw you on blast there, but yeah, my first bow and I was still a young man was chasing critters with a PSE. And I think something that's lost nowadays in bow hunting is I killed a doe and I'm still excited about that first harvest with my bow. I kill does every year with my bow. I absolutely love it. You know, I'm one of those guys that I would rather shoot a doe with my bow than to go back out with a rifle and hunt later. It's just the way I am. I mean, it's to me, it's about bow hunting and that's what I enjoy doing. And it's pretty rare year that I could pick up a rifle and shoot anything, even here in Wyoming where we have that option. I, I would just rather shoot an animal with my bow than to go back and rifle hunt later. And I'm more and more and more getting to be that same way. Once we, we do the archery August antelope and then we move move right into elk September and once September kind of closes it's there's a little bit of pain that goes every year of we gotta wait till next year now right <laughs> yeah it uh, it's definitely that way you know and I kind of switch over to guiding family and friends with a rifle as the rifle season comes on and I rarely shoot many animals at all with a rifle myself even in the last couple of years the deer I shot during uh, rifle season were actually with a bow I shot a few does during rifle season but still with my bow and I, I think there's a natural transition for a lot of big game hunters that start out with just want to harvest something and then you get into that rifle game but then once you transition into the i guess with with the rifle you know you harvest something two to 300 yards, you walk up and it's done with a bow. You know, you got to find them at 200, 300 yards, and then you got to figure out how to get a couple hundred percent closer. And that 20 to 30 yard mark is where I'm aiming for. Sometimes we're a little further, but at 120 yards, it might as well be 1200 yards with a bow. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, I don't even start tough stalking an animal until most rifle hunters would be where they'd shoot it. Yeah. You know, when I was younger, people used to tell me, you'll get to a point in your life where it's not as much about shooting the animal but it's about hunting and shooting it in the way and where you want to do it and not as much about the trophy class but having accomplished it the way you want to accomplish it and uh, that's kind of where i'm at at the point in my life now is when i go hunting if i want to elk hunt you know and i want to call elk i'm going to bugle elk and i want to call them in in the rut and get that excitement if i can over anything else because that's my preferred method that's what i want to do i'm going to shoot them in a bowl with a bow in the middle of the rut or i want to spot and stalk antelope in the heat of august when it's the most miserable out there but that's the way i want to kill them <laughs> right well, we've seen this in fishing as well right patrick you get a guy that just wants to catch a fish and then he wants to catch certain fish and then you progress to kind of the pinnacle of hey i want to go catch a post spawn x with this lure on this line in this body of water and then once you accomplish that you're like well can i do it in another body right mm -hmm. and there is that progression of actually making it more difficult because let's be honest i mean with drones we could be harvesting trophy potential animals from our computer sitting on our couch at home oh absolutely yeah I mean, yeah it can be done caveman was using the pinnacle of their technology to harvest animals if we were to use the pinnacle of ours, it would lessen the experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. But it, there's definitely a point in your life where it becomes more about uh, the the adventure to get out there than the particular size of animal or the trophy you put into it. Yeah. And you talked a little bit earlier about having a fishing background as well. And so you can kind of speak to that end of it too. And you fish tournaments and kind of how things evolve over time with fishing too, right? 
Right. Yeah. I, uh, I spent a lot of years chasing the bass fishing tournament circuit around all over the country. And after a while, I got to a point where I was much more enjoyed the time in the mountains fly fishing and more secluded and not the rat race of that world, which there's nothing wrong with it. It, it was an absolute blast and I enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, the lure, I guess, of the mountains and hunting and the high country fly fishing and the little more peaceful life uh, was one of the things that brought us to Wyoming for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And getting out somewhere where most people aren't going to go, there's just something special about that and listening to the wind come through the trees and catching those fish and absolutely just the views that you get in wyoming are unparalleled really yeah i love going into some of the high mountain streams where you're the only one probably gonna fish it that year and you know there's hundreds and thousands of fish per mile and they're not picky and you can take (laughs) your grandkids and teach them to fly fish at six years old and they will catch fish Mm -hmm. until they're tired of catching fish yeah absolutely so tell us a little bit about your background as far as you know your journey to wyoming what all brought you here i mean you talked about a little bit well i grew up in uh, eastern washington um hunting and fishing there around grand coulee dam area in the wheat country little small town and uh, as time alluded i uh, worked there as a nurse i ran a small taxidermy shop there for a few years uh, doing mainly fish taxidermy and as my kids grew up um my girls wanted to graduate from the high school there my son was about 12 years old in 2009 and uh, we the politics of the coastal states being what they are whether you like it or not there's differently different um kind of seen that in the writing on the wall for me and it was time to leave and i wanted the opportunity to hunt more species and more tags with my bow without having to travel a lot so as i researched places wyoming was pretty much the top of the list for the number of tags and the least amount of miles to be able to hunt the most animals there's nothing like the state of wyoming when it comes to that and so i uh i think you meant colorado no <laughs> montana <laughs> It's the worst weather ever when it comes to here, though. You don't want to put up with the weather. It was zero this morning in March, zero here. So and yeah, yeah, it's it definitely cold. You have to learn to tolerate it. And if you don't love the outdoors, this country is not for you because you, most people pull their hair out one winter and leave again. Yeah, yeah. So that attracted me to this country. Obviously, the hunting. It's no secret out there. You can listen to every hunting podcast out there, and Wyoming's on the top of the list. Unfortunately, but <laughs> <laughs> it. Uh, it does have a lot to offer. Um, and uh, so we just literally decided we were going to pack up and move to Wyoming. And that brought us into Wyoming and uh, been hunting here ever since and working as a nurse. Then the last few years, as I get closer to retirement age, we started talking about opening the taxidermy shop and uh, kind of semi-retiring into there and backing out of the full-time work gig a little bit. That's kind of brought us to where we are today. So I have one other question on that. What was the biggest shock coming to Wyoming from Washington besides the cold wind? (laughs) I don't, you know, none of it really shocked me any. Where I grew up in eastern Washington was very similar terrain and weather. Shorter winters, not as extreme, but very similar in that aspect of it. I think actually the biggest shock to me was just being awestruck with the opportunities hunting as a resident here that you can get if you really learn how the system works and what you do and you put the efforts in right i came from western oregon and it's very coastal very cold and went to alaska and then came here so similar in i was used to being wet and cold and soggy and now i i'm i'm less uh, tolerant of the wet I, I'll, I'll tolerate the wind a little bit the difference i guess for me is you know i can be out in a zero degree day here and if you've got the right layers 
still kind of be warm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And where I grew up in eastern Washington was not what the wet area. It was definitely the dry, cold area. So that's kind of what I was used to. More of a Wyoming type feel to it, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Now, I know your dad. So talk a little bit about what is like, you know, doing hunting and fishing activities with your kids and, you know, just kind of some of the things that you did with them. Well, having my kids young in Washington state, the one good thing about that state was there was no minimum hunting age. And so as soon as they could pass the hunter safety uh, exam, they did and started hunting. And that was usually eight for all three of my children. Um, My oldest daughter never really got into hunting. She did fish a lot and we fished a lot. Uh, And then my middle daughter, Shelly, and my son, they're both hunters and still hunt a lot, um, probably as much as I do. And, uh, you know, we just grew up doing it together. They, at first when they were little, I would go through archery season and then we'd switch over to rifle season with them and we'd go deer hunting really all we had there was deer the elk hunt is pretty poor i think i bow hunted for elk there for 20 years and shot two cows so it's pretty limited on the elk opportunities in washington state but the deer hunting for non-trophy deer was all right um we shot deer pretty much every year with a bow but we did it together we did a lot of things together you know in the early years when they're little there's a lot more car time and a lot of spotting and glassing and get out take one kid go shoot that deer go try and get that deer back in the car where it's warm go do it over again but uh it definitely brought them into the point where they are now and they're uh they love to be in the outdoors and they love to go hunting together and we still hunt together as a family every year and you had some really good access for some great fishing up there being on the columbia as well and the different reservoirs in that area yeah we uh we lived very close i had a i had a really nice bass boat for years and years and we lived right on the two reservoirs on the columbia river and then banks lake um a part of the irrigation system there on grand coulee dam and we fished um, after work at night in the evenings and we fished every weekend and from the time the ice left to the time the ice came back on other than during hunting season that was about it yeah walleyes are up there too and walleye and bass, bass largemouth smallmouth yep. bass a lot of trout fishing and we did a little bit of steelhead and salmon fishing but that was never the top of my list on that did mainly warm water species did you ever tangle with the white sturgeon up there i never did no that's something never i want to do someday it would be fun. They're huge. More yeah. in the lower Columbia yeah. than the upper part of the Columbia. So, you know, I'm interested to ask you, you know, my dad was a, a big fisherman, big influence in my life in that aspect. And we also did some hunting, but that was definitely his secondary hobby. So as both my brother and I have grown up, hunting is now our primary hobby and fishing secondary. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't go and haven't done and, and won't go. But have you seen something similar with your kids? What's their favorite activity and what was kind of your favorite activity? Um, I think when I grew up, we fished more than we hunted for sure, but mainly largely due to the seasons there being so short. Um, we did more waterfowl hunting, things like that a lot in the fall. And then, but we fished by far a lot more and a lot more seriously than we did hunt until kind of turned into the late teenage years. Um, when I got back after I got out of the military, uh, we started doing a lot more bow hunting then, more serious bow hunting. And then as time went on, I gravitated more into hunting and less and less into fishing until finally the hunting bug bit me so bad, I just dropped the whole state and moved to Wyoming because that's what I wanted to do. I don't blame you there. (laughs) Everybody, all our podcast listeners know how I feel about one of the states I came from and we we won't be negative towards them anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now that your kids are growing up, what's your favorite thing to go do with them? I'd say the elk hunting every year, we get together for at least a week, if not two weeks, uh, my son and my middle daughter, and we go chase elk in the rut with a bow. Last year, uh, we killed 
three elk in five days with a bow and that was our best year ever in a short amount of time it was kind of unusual but it was a fantastic week but we get together and we spend the time bow hunting every year and that's like our our yearly where everybody gets together and we have a good time and go do some bow hunting and have some family time and we do a lot of other stuff through the year we shoot quite a bit of 3d archery competitions through the year just for fun um different places and that's a good time it's fun to do with family yeah for sure well while you're out there fishing i would highly recommend take one of our sponsors fishing lures and that's pk lures yeah pk lures it's that time of year the ice is going to be gone soon i'm hoping because <laughs> i'm ready i'm ready to get the boat out and do something other than ice fishing and they've got some really good new lipless crankbait colors their pk ridge rattler crankbait i can't wait to hit some bass like you were talking about and some walleye um and some trout you know the trout will whack those things. absolutely um so i'm excited to get those out and try them they've got this one that's kind of got like a purplish color to it pretty shiny i bet you that thing's gonna do really well so again you can go to pklure.com and check that out we also just got a huge box of stuff from pk that we are going to be giving away a whole bunch of product so um, be watching our socials and our website we will have a giveaway coming up very soon for open water fishing gear for pk so kurt and pat thank you yeah kurt and pat thank you we want to start seeing where our listeners are using those pk lures yeah send us pictures I want to see some pictures of some big fish on these <laughs> on these lures. So they're definitely not a, a cold water species lure or a warm water species lure. They they're cover not the a, spectrum. They cover the spectrum and they cover the country. So and the seasons, like there's ice fishing jigging spoons you know there's there's open water you know whether it's the spinach jig if you're going to be fishing you know walleye off of a point or if you're going to be trolling cranks or if you're going to be pulling crawler harnesses they have everything so and they're all unique and they are all different and i can say it's the pk rattle spoon it's got like a rattle chamber in it absolutely deadly on brown trout i'm just gonna say that if you don't believe me go to my socials and you can check it out (laughs) so pklure.com get you some pks thanks pk Absolutely. Well, let's move right into, you mentioned, you know, Western Hunter Magazine and an article and hunting with hounds. And, and, you know, we haven't really had a houndsman on here and talked about hounds. So this is a first. This is a first. And let's talk about dogs. Well, what I have is not actually a hound. He's a yak terrier. He's a terrier. Uh, He's a blood trailing dog for big game hunting. It was legalized in Wyoming a few years ago. So blood trailing is pretty new to the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been doing it for in the East Coast for years. I actually got introduced to it in Africa. Um, I went over to Africa, did some hunting over there. The uh, very first animal I shot, I was a bit overexcited and made a bad shot on it. I'm not a real bad shot, but we had a hard time finding it. And they put the blood trailing dog on it and went, turned, went from a 12-hour blood trail to about a 35-minute recovery. Just got me obsessed with it and so shortly after that i got back and here's the article wyoming put out saying they're legalizing blood trailing and all the regulations to it and everything and so i literally sent a text to my wife and said hey we're buying another dog <laughs> guess <laughs> what <looking>. honey <laughs> <laughs> she tolerates him pretty well he's pretty hyper little dog but uh i uh, you know like most hunters brother rifle or bow or anything we've all lost animals that we've had it's it's a part of life people want to hide it or it's not fun but it's part of it and uh, so I decided I was going to do my best to uh, recover as many animals as I can and so I went and found a a breeder out of Idaho over by Idaho Falls that had yak terriers and they were used for hunting and, and trailing and a lot of houndsmen use them with their hounds and so I got one started training him 
went into the first season of bow hunting with him. He was 12 weeks old. The first animal we put him on was a mule deer. My wife shot made about a 300 yard run in pouring rain. And, you know, blood trails are hard to follow in that rain. Mm -hmm. And I put that 12 week dog on that thing and he went straight to that deer. And I was pretty sold at that point. And so I put him on every, pretty much everything I kill, the dog goes after whether they, whether it's, I see a fall inside or not, just get him used to it. So in the last four years he's with friends the animals and everything he's pretty much trailed almost 100 animals probably by now um he's trailed a lot of them the longest trail he's done was a deer that was a poor hit that got almost a three mile blood trail wow. i'd have never have found it not a drop of blood for a mile or more in the in the trail and it took about 45 minutes to go find the deer wow so he's uh, definitely, they're a great value, absolute great value. I tell people all the time that if the uh, bird hunter, a pheasant hunter, or a waterfowler will tell you you're not ethical to go hunting without a good dog to recover your birds because you lose so many of them. Well, in the big game world, we lose animals all the time. And to be able to put a dog on them and recover them is just as ethical as recovering a pheasant or a duck or anything else. You're not using them to hunt it. You're just using them to recover it. And uh, I've not lost an animal that was so severely wounded since I got the dog. And the ones I've recovered for other people have just been phenomenal. And so it, I'm pretty sold on the process of having a blood trailing dog. Yeah, and those terriers are super smart dogs. Yeah, I he's mean, a I've, really smart dog. I've had a couple of terriers, and it just blows me away just how intelligent they are. Not to mention, obviously, they can smell really well. Right. But what does that look like when you're training that dog? I mean, how do you train a dog to do that for you? We started with uh, chunks of liver from animals. So I had some, because uh, I eat the liver. So I had some liver in the freezer. So we started with chunks of liver, thawing it out, dragging it a few feet, getting them used to that. Went and you can buy actually blood trailing scent that you can use to dribble out. And we started with that you know 50 yards 100 yards 300 yards turning corners over things different di making different complicated trails for them and it's like a other a lot of other hunting breed hunting dogs when they get the idea and if they have the breeding in the background kind of in their genealogy they just do it and that was him i mean it, by the time he was 12 weeks old he pretty much had it down that's awesome so what would you say to the guys that, you know, are, are claiming it's ethical or unethical as far as using that dog? I mean, you've already kind of touched on the fact that it's it's night and day difference as far as recovery. But. Right. I mean, yeah, anybody, you know, to, to me, it's the unethical part is to not even consider it if you have the option. A lot of people don't have the option. There's not a lot of blood trailing dogs around. There's a, a National Blood Trailing Association. You can go on there and there's people who are registered as trailers and they will come if they can to help you find, recover an animal. And there's only a couple in Idaho and Wyoming. I'm not on the site. If I, if someone knows me and has my number and wants to get a hold of me and needs something recovered and I have time, be more than glad to help. It's definitely a good option. I just don't know what, you know, what would make somebody this side that is not ethical to do everything they can to try and find an animal they wounded. I, I, I just can't fathom that thought, but I guess there could be the people out there. Yeah, there's, I think in any industry, I know it happens in fishing, you just have what I call trolls, people who just got to be negative and nasty about something. So they pick an issue, right? And then they decide that it's bad. So if they see anybody using it, then they target that person. I don't right. know if it's just like a psychological thing for them that helps them feel better about themselves or whatever it is. I don't have any patience for those folks, but I think it makes a lot more sense like if you've if you've shot an animal and you need to get it recovered well there's a couple of things i mean you want to get the animal 
for yourself as soon as possible, but you probably don't want that animal to suffer either. Right. Right. So it's, I don't know. I, I, I just don't understand. Some people can be really negative about some of these things. So, and the dog does have to be on a lead. They have to be on a mm-hmm. 50 foot lead all the time. They can't be free running. Um, if the animal does get up, you are allowed to shoot it, but you have to have the dog maintained on the lead. You can't like let him go bay it up or anything like that. Right. They have to be on the lead, but, uh, it's definitely the most ethical way I've found to find difficult animals. So maybe it's the misconception. Maybe people think that you're just like letting them loose and letting them run them like a hound would do. Right. No, like it's that. not like that. Cause they have to be under your hand control on the lead the whole time. Yeah. From the time you start them on the blood trail to the end. And it's, uh, so they're well controlled and there's very specific laws, regulations to it. Just like any other part of hunting to where you can't hunt with them. I mean, it's, it's obvious they have to be contained when you shoot the animal, then you can get the dog out to find it. And if you're up in the winds and you want to keep that dog close anyway, because there's lots of other things out there that would right. be potentially bad and for you your can dog. Think, I mean, like my dog will go hunting with me or he'll spend, I mean, he, he just loves being in the truck. He's one of those truck dogs. Uh, mm-hmm. I can take him hunting and go out for the whole morning elk hunting. And he's very content to lay in his truck and be the owner until someone get tell you get back and then he's ready to get out and go he That's just likes being out you. there yeah he they're just like a pilot yeah <laughs> yeah it's his truck he yeah. owns it when he's in it it's his absolutely i heard guys complain about e-collars in the same similar sense right and from just my upland waterfowl experience and i did have one hound at one point in time but you know there's people that are against anti e-collars and until you've actually gone out and trained and worked and used dogs, e-collar is more humane than because you can you can get out there and get that response to that dog right now. They it, it makes that training process so much faster. Now I'm right. a big uh, proponent of I don't even put an e-collar on until my dog's a year old, and then it's just another tool. And I get the point where my dog's three now, and I just have to tone her, and she knows what's going on, and mm-hmm. she's back on track. And yeah. My dog's definitely trained with the e-collar. He runs with a tracking collar on it. That's the e-collar. And one is I don't lose my dog in the woods, which is a big fear of mine always to be able to be able to find him on a GPS and say, oh, here's my dog if they do happen to get away. And the other side of it is exactly that. I don't have to call my dog and be noisy if something, if he's doing something and I'm in the woods trying to be quiet, all I got to do is that silent beep or a vibrate and he's back in line. <laughs> you, you don't have to, I almost never have to use a shock on him. Almost never. Yeah. That's all it takes is that little tone to remind him that, oh, yeah, I'm still under control here. Yeah, my short hair lab mix, I call him a short brain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, when he has that collar on, he's really pretty good. And when he starts to, you know, kind of straight do whatever, all we do is just a little bit of vibration. You're good to go. I mean, he's he's right there where he needs to be. So it, it definitely makes a difference. Yeah. So you mentioned the article from Western Hunter magazine. So roundabout way, my... Uh, my nephew has a friend, George Betis, with uh, writes for Western Hunter Magazine. And they were actually on a hunting trip together last fall. And uh, Tyler had come out and shot an antelope here with his bow. And we trailed it with the dog. And uh, he's a big dog fan, bird hunter and everything else. And so he was telling George about the dog. Well, then George, they called actually from hunting camp one night asking if we, he could uh, get some information about from me and do an article on the dog. And so, yeah, there's several pictures of different animals in there. The dog recovered in an interview with me and an interview with one other guy from Montana that has some blood trailing dogs. So is there one species of dog or, I mean, a couple species that stand out 
compared to other blood tracking hounds that are more preferable? Um, a lot of people use hounds, different blood hounds, blue ticks, whatever. Most guys like smaller dogs just because the convenience of it, especially if they're just using them for a recovery dog. Uh, the actual, they claim the best nose on any dog there is, is a teckle. A teckle is actually the true German hunting breed of a wiener dog. Huh. It is the best blood trailing dog they claim there is. And right behind that is the Yak Terrier and a couple other dogs out there. But probably the most common of all is um, a lot of the bird hunting breeds and then German short hairs and hound dogs and different things. People use whatever dog, if they train them to run blood, they'll run blood, you know, if they have a good nose. So how many years does it take to get a dog ready for this or does it just take weeks? I mean, I think most dogs, if they're really in a hunting type breed, it doesn't take that long to get them ready for it. It just takes some training to learn to run them on a lead through the brush because it is it takes a lot of training you as the handler to handle a 50 foot lead and blow down is a job it's not like oh i'm walking through the grass with my dog on a 50 foot lead and he's running back and forth you're going through sagebrush and blow down and across creeks and over logs and the dog you know how a dog runs through there and now you got a 50 foot rope on him and you have to follow that dog so you better be in pretty good shape when you start <laughs> heading after an elk in the high country through the blow down on a 50 foot rope you're going to be work not as easy as it sounds that would wear me out <laughs> <laughs> i don't like blow down that much is there any articles literature or any any place for somebody that wanted to start training a, a dog like this i would say the you yeah the blood trailers association the united united blood trailers association the website um they have pretty much all the information you ever want from seminars to books that you can get to that's where i got the information to learn to train them and the ideas on how to train them and they they're probably they're kind of the pinnacle in the united states of blood trailing dogs training them and uh, where to go do things there's actually a pretty good group out of the um, front range of colorado right now I can't remember the name, but it is Blood Trail Association for Colorado, and they're getting pretty active with the blood trailing dogs, actually having some competitions and stuff. That's pretty sweet. And so I'm guessing the competitions, they have something, they go hide someplace and then they, what, time the dog? Yeah, they usually run a blood trail, do some complicated maneuvers with the blood trails, sharp turns through brush, uh, you know, areas, periods where there's no blood on the ground. And then uh, they usually have to go find like a piece of fur or something that's out there. That's impressive. So David, we got to talk about bow spider for a minute too. David just got back from the Iowa Deer Classic. It was a good time. Yeah. You got to meet a lot of new faces, some old faces, some loyal customers, and got to show people all the ways they can utilize their bow spider in their life. To I mean, uh, the new thought came to mind is it's not your grandfather's bow you're buying. Quit carrying it like your grandfather did. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one of the best, most innovative archery inventions I've seen in years. I have, I think, six of them. Every backseat <laughs> of my truck, I have two on my pack. My kids have them. I don't even know what I'd do without it anymore. It's, uh, it's just become a part of my hunting arsenal for everything I do with my bow. I'm sure you use it in your 3D shoots. and Absolutely. Yeah, I take it everywhere. So it's it's just, it makes life so much easier. Bows are cumbersome to carry. Yeah. So what's your favorite use? My favorite use yeah. is the back of my, my truck seat. <laughs> my bow can ride there through the roughest, worst terrain, never get damaged, 
and it's right there. If, if it's August and it's antelope season and I see an antelope, my window's down, I don't even have to open the door. I just reach through the window, grab my bow, and head out to go make a stock. That's it. I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. It's that easy. A lot of people in this industry specifically like to market with the word game changer. And I actually explicitly try not to use it because <laughs> I hate how much I go by a booth and somebody says, oh, game changer, game changer. But literally, if if you haven't picked up the bow spider, seen the bow spider, go look at some of the some of the videos we have out there it, every customer i have that's integrated the system into their life that's that's what they come back and tell me is it's changed the way i hunt whether you're whitetail up and down the tree with no pull rope whether you're a spot and stock guy you know antelope mule deer elk the attack pack i mean i don't know if you've seen that yet mike but you can drop your pack still clip your bow on your back and you can crawl in that final hundred yards on a bedded antelope or a bedded mule deer what other system allows you to do yeah that. i uh first first hunt i took it on was a mountain goat hunt with a bow and the tetons the first year they put that tag out and be able to have my both hands both feet bow immediately available going through that <laughs> scree rock right above a cliff is an unbelievable thing and i was hooked from that point on yeah is the website i mean you don't have to take it from the three of us. <laughs> we're, we're here just a couple guys talking about it but there's there's hundreds of customers that have converted to one Oh, and the one thing I'll tell you is if you're out there and you have a local bow shop and they don't know about it, you might tell them about it so that you have a local dealer. That's one of the things that David's trying to do is work with local dealers. So if you have that bow shop down the road from you, tell them about it and see if they can get a stock. So moving on here, I want you to tell us about your taxidermy business. Tell us kind of what was the impetus of that, the history of that and how you got into it. Well, I, uh, like I said, I started doing taxidermy when I was very young. I think I was 12 years old. Um, I started a correspondence course for taxidermy because I wanted to do stuff for myself. And uh, I was knew I was never going to afford the money to just have all the mounts I'd like to have in my house, which is no wall space, just mounts everywhere. Believe me, my wife will tell you it's full. <laughs> <laughs> it's a showroom. But, uh, huh? Yeah, it, uh, so that kind of got me bird into it and I've done it ever since. Um, and so 30 some years I've been doing taxidermy work, opened a shop in Washington state when I was younger for a while, mainly did fish there, then kind of closed with some of the economy and work and life and kids and everything and just didn't work out at that point and then coming to wyoming um working as a nurse i hunted and uh, filled my house with trophies with one thing after the other until it was pretty much full and then uh, in the last year or so my son started doing more stuff and uh, so he's doing all the bird taxidermy and stuff and he's been learning and we just kind of decided last year well heck let's kind of goof off and open a shop and see what will happen so we opened it in his garage, um, where it still currently is, uh, doing taxidermy work there. And uh, the response was just been overwhelming. I mean, the amount of the amount of people that came in and the trophies they brought us and has just been kind of overwhelming with it just starting up. We're hoping for even a better year this next year. So it's been really good. And, the, you know, the hope is to uh, retire into that my last years of working and build a business that my son can keep going for the next 40 years on keep it in the community around here so you know what are your favorite animals to do like if you had to pick like are you a guy who likes to do the big game and do like the elk or do you like doing the fish or the birds you know what's your Um, what's your thing I think uh, by far my favorite, I like to do the big game animals, especially the real big stuff, kind of the, the once in a lifetime stuff. So the trophy, the sheep, the, or the um, moose, the sheep, the goats, some of that kind of stuff. I like, I love doing big game heads all together. I really like doing the artistic part of it. So instead of just the head on the wall, but um, if you look at my uh, Facebook page under Kentner Taxidermy, you'll see some that I got working on. It's like a 
white-tailed deer going through the tule weeds with rubbing a branch on there so it's it's alive and it's more art into the whole thing than just that head on the wall that's probably my favorite to do and that's when i do really enjoy doing fish for that same aspect because you don't just have the fish you have the fish and the scenery and the things that go with it that just bring it alive and so adding those extra things into a mount is just that's what really makes them really special to me so like the deer i just did is coming through the tule weeds it was and it's in a snow scene and it was actually shot this last year in november in the swamps around ocean lake in all the tule weeds and so it's mounted just pretty much the way it was when he shot it one of my favorites gene gallitz who's just up the road his wife did one with a northern pike and a duckling and you know the northern pike's coming up and about to grab that duckling you know the duckling's just hanging out it's thinking everything's fine yeah yeah <laughs> those kind of things make the mount even more special i think yeah absolutely and so how much work are you guys doing right now you know how how busy are you um right now i'm just finishing up the rest of the the big game stuff from last hunting season i got some fish come in through ice fishing season the sun's got a few more birds to, to do from the bird season to go in so things are starting to slow down a little bit right now we do have the i got a couple cats coming in so for some some uh, mountain lions to do a couple of those and then we're going into spring bear season and we're hoping to run a special on some spring bear stuff for the years get some people come in and get some bear work done this spring and we can do the either shoulder mounts or rugs uh, full body mounts i'd also do pack mounts which if anybody's seen them the the looks like the animal being packed out on a frame that's a pretty cool one um it's kind of a new idea to just be able to display something like a bear and not have so much wall space taken up yeah do you do replica fish too or i do do replica fish yes so you do replicas and skin mounts yep replica skin mounts and then for like uh, the cold water species for most of the trout species i do kind of a combination so it's a skin mount fins and body with a replica head okay because the heads on the cold water species has such a shrinkage problem. It's hard to, you're putting a lot of putty back into them. It's hard to get them as realistic looking. So it's kind of a hybrid of a partial partial replica, partial real fish, skin fish. I've noticed over time, like you see different skin mounts and replicas, and it seems like the replicas hold up a lot better on a lot of them. Yeah, um, skin mounts will hold up pretty much forever if they're done correctly, if they're preserved correctly. But a replica is definitely more durable. A skin mount falls off the wall, your fins are broken. I mean, they're just very fragile. They're thin, they're fragile. If you add a bunch of beef to them, they look, then they look fake. Um, the fins that are on the new replicas are more flexible, they're more a rubber product and they're definitely more durable altogether with that but you know then with the replica you're not getting the exact size of fish it's the closest replica form that we can get for that fish so you may be a half inch shorter or slightly bigger girth or slightly smaller girth something the paint job i can make look if you get good pictures pretty much what you caught size wise is going to be as close as i can get but not perfect (laughs) yeah my dad had a fish uh, mount growing up he got it out of flaming gorge here when he was a kid and uh, we used to call it the moldy fish because the the fans were (laughs) (laughs) the 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 hide was splitting open the stitches were showing that the head was shrunk in and the fins were curling up and i thankfully i think he made that thing finally go away but (laughs) i know he was proud of it but it didn't look very good on the wall they can come out pretty rough sometimes so we've, we've talked a little bit about mounts i i'm assuming you know pricing is is straightforward and on the website yep pricing i have a pricing sheet on the website on the or on the the facebook page yeah timing you know how uh, what's a typical i know you guys are getting busier and busier but what's your turnaround gonna be 
Um, this year I kept everything pretty much 90 days or less. If you wanted like full body mounts, full body lion, bear, something like that, obviously that's going to be a little longer, but I keep the timing fairly quick because I'm not sending my hides to a tannery. I'm doing all the tanning work myself in the shop. So we do all our own tanning. So I'm not having to send it to a tannery and wait for them to get done with it and send it back to me. We shave and tan the hide right in the shop. So usually if I bring it in, someone brings me a deer head and I'm in the shop and I skin it, it doesn't even go in the freezer. It gets measured, skinned right into the tanning solution. And by the time I get the form back in a week or two when I order it, it's on the list to be mounted in the next few weeks. So um, guys that can't bring something to you to skin, that what what measurements do you really need to, you know, say a big bull elk or a, a moose somebody gets somewhere? All I need is a hide. I can measure the hide and get the form for it. I don't even need any measurements off it. Okay. Yeah, if you can skin and cape it, um, there's really very little damage you can do to one I can't repair. Eyelids being the most difficult, I can repair them, but sometimes you will see it at real close distance. You'll see a little bit of eye repair. The rest of it, I can pretty much repair any other part. You cut a hole in the hide, I can sew it up. Just be careful when you skin them. But yeah, and if you can't get them right to somebody, freeze it. Freeze the hide, clean the skull up the best you can. All I need is the, the horns you know, old-fashioned cut the horns off i don't need the whole skull just bring me that and uh, i'll tan the hide and measure it up and take the measurements off the hide and do you like to try and keep the top corners of the eyes when they skull cap them it's nice if you can yeah especially on antelope it's it's important because antelope do include the top corner of the eyes on them the rest of the big game animals is not as important but it is nice because i can use that measurement on it but i can get the measurement from the eye to the burr on the hide and get the same basic measurement what about fish? Because I know fish can be a little dicey if they want a skin mount. So um, Yeah, skin mount, freeze the whole thing, bring it to me. Don't skin it. Don't skin it. Don't eat it. Don't flay it. <laughs> I filleted it. And yeah. I want you to mount it. Yeah. Wrap it. Uh, the best thing to do with fish, because the fins will freeze or burn and dry, is to get a towel damp and wrap the whole fish in a towel. Use one of your wife's towels. You tell her you buy her a new set or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> You're going to get people in trouble. Yeah, then wrap that in a garbage sack. So it's just like meat basically how you would do your uh, uh, steak from a deer or an elk and uh, put that in the freezer and then bring it to me and i'll thaw it and skin it and measure it and everything else because it's it is easy to damage a fish if you want to skin them out yeah don't don't let it sit out in the sun no don't, i mean there's a lot of things like i always tell people get it into a cooler and keep it cold get it home and like you said damp towel some people vacuum seal the whole thing into a vacuum seal bag too yeah you know just whatever's going to hold that moisture so that you don't lose it it's hard to put a 20 pound pike in a vacuum true yeah, but, but if you're doing like a <laughs> like a big rainbow trout or right or, or a perch or something like yeah. that yeah even a standard more more normal size walleye you can get them in a vacuum bag mm -hmm. and that's a vacuum sealer works good it protects the fins pretty good but you just fold your fins down against the body freeze it that way and keeping it cool goes with everything i don't care whether it's a deer or an elk <laughs> antelope in august during archery season take ice with you if you think you want something mounted take ice with you put it on ice because antelope as you know you can grab an antelope freshly killed and pull all the hair out of the butt the hair is very fragile so you have to be carry very careful with it and cool it as fast as you can so a couple things that i would add that i've learned to do is short incision instead of splitting all the way up the shoulder to the base of the skull and then doing the y you know and so I do a short incision, eight, 10 inches, depending right. on the animal, and then go ahead and, you know, there's a several how-to YouTube videos of how to not do eye damage, nose damage, right. mouth damage. So, and on the other thing I'd say is either, either a scalpel or like an outdoor edge change of blade that's got a 
wicked sharp. So yeah. sharper the knife when you're and when take you're your caping. time. Take yeah. your time. Yeah, I carry a Havilon <laughs> with me for caping pretty much anything because it's so convenient. And when it starts to get dull, just pop a new blade on and you're sharp again. Yeah, be careful if you can learn to do the short incision or it's called a tube skin. It's absolutely fantastic. It gives you a little bit better looking mount. I mean, especially in an early season deer. So if you're talking August, September deer, um, the hair is very short. It's hard to hide that seam completely when you sew it. Um, you know, a November rut whitetail, no problem sewing them up there. You know, you, you can sew them up without a seam really easy. I'm um, always a mountain goat, a doll sheep, they'll sew up if yeah, you want to. Yeah. The other thing I can say is make sure you leave plenty of skin behind the shoulder. Don't don't go right behind the shoulder and bring your taxidermist something that's got an inch of layover past the form. I mean, it doesn't take much more work to carry out 10 more inches of hide on a deer or an elk and give him no taxidermist is ever going to complain because you gave him too much skin to mount. But uh, I've had some come in that are short and you've got to overstretch the neck to get it on there. And then you end up with a smaller neck than what you want because you can only stretch your skin lengthwise or widthwise, but you can't really stretch both. So you lose out that way a little bit. So uh, give them all the cape you can and then you get that nice big neck you like and uh, the, definitely the better looking mount that you want. So we do the gutless method on all our elk, but if we're saving a cape, I kind of imagine where my belly button is, and I make a ring around the elk there, and I still do a short incision, and I make sure I come up the back side of the elbows, you know, and stay off that front side. Right. Yeah, I usually tube the elbows even. Um, on elk, I'll usually cut all the way down the back. I don't mind having them cut all the way down because the mane on them is pretty long. It's an easy decision to sew, and uh, you won't really ever see the incision on them. But if you can tube them, it's always just that much easier doing a short incision on them um but uh yeah the biggest thing i were more worry more about having enough skin to get over a form especially when like an elk or a moose when you got such a big shoulder and then you want a full shoulder with the first part of the front leg on it and the customer brings you barely the brisket and then it's like <laughs> well this ain't gonna work we're gonna have to, to be a little shorter and smaller than what you wanted yeah what's the most difficult ones to do like of all the, you know, whether it be game or fish, what are the more difficult ones? Some of the more difficult ones are some of the upland birds because the feathers fall out so easily. Turkeys are a bit challenging. And, uh, you know, most of the big game species are pretty straightforward doing them. I mean, there's always little intricacies like antelope. You got to be careful with not pulling all the hair out. I mean, you can take a deer or elk hide and be pretty rough fleshing it and uh, you don't have to be too careful with it. But you do that with one antelope and you'll end up with bald spots halfway down. It's a little more tender with those. They all kind of got their intricacies in doing them and getting them put together right. But uh, I would say the little birds, the upland birds with the fine feathers are probably the hardest of all to get to look right. How about on the fish side? Hmm. Well, I would say... The fish side, the hardest is the cold water species, the trout, um, salmon, those type of fish, just largely because the skin is so smooth. The scales are so small and a little more delicate. And so you just got to be a little more intricate in the whole working of it to keep from so you don't see any of the form under the skin. You don't see a wrinkle. You don't see like little sand beads under it from sanding it or any of that kind of stuff. You have to be pretty meticulous in keeping them clean. That makes sense. So, you know, speaking of fish and game, what is your favorite fish species to eat? I would say my favorite fish species by far is a yellow perch. I Sound like Alan. I like warm <laughs> I like warm water species better than anything, but their crappie and perch are by far I think the best eating fish out there. Yeah. How do you prepare that? You know, talking about Al Lender in the old days, he uh, <laughs> he introduced the uh, mashed the instant mashed potato flakes 
you dip it in a uh, in little milk and an egg bath and then uh, roll it in mashed data flakes and fry it. And that makes some of the best fish you've ever seen. Real common in the Midwest is a shore lunch batter, but it is fantastic. Talking about those Idaho potatoes. Yes, right? absolutely. Instant, Instant Idaho, Idaho potatoes. One of the best <laughs> fish batters in the world. Yeah, we had him on the show and he said that yellow perch was his favorite. So. Yeah, it, uh, it by far, I think it's one of the best eating fish there is. What about big game? You know, I honestly think antelope and bear are my two favorite. Elk is pushing a tight third, but uh, an elk or antelope when it's cooled off and taken care of is a <laughs> fine piece of meat that most people are just, there's a lot of people just don't understand. It's all about care of the meat, but they are a good agree. piece of meat. There's somebody out there screaming at the radio <laughs> right now, right? But I know. I, but yeah, I, I would almost give up elk before I gave up antelope. So it's my favorite food. The one that throws me isn't the antelope, it's the bear. So tell me more about the bear. Oh, um, I actually, I take the bear and I just shot one this last year and I take all four quarters off it and brine them just like you would a pork ham and smoke them into <laughs> a ham and bake it into a roast later. And that's by far one of the best pieces of meat you will ever have. I think High Mountain just did a post on doing something like yeah, that. Yeah, I so. used their uh, their ham seasoning on my bear this year. It was fantastic. Okay. Yeah, so Robin Defoe, I'm giving a shout out to one of my buddies that I went camping with this last Memorial weekend. He brought some uh, spring bear steaks up to Glendo and we cooked those up and that was pretty darn good. And I hadn't really eaten bear you know, I think I had it once in Alaska or something like that, but I hadn't really eaten it. And it was pretty darn tasty. And so I was, that's why I was so curious about that. Yeah. Bear is a fantastic. I don't throw the back straps away. They're get all cut up into steaks, but uh, I really like bear meat, bear ribs, all of it. I eat all of it just like any other animal. And it's, uh, it's one of my favorites by far. And what about birds? I mean, what's your favorite? I mean, upland favorite birds. I actually am a duck guy when it comes to that. I like the puddle duck, waterfowl, mallards, that stuff. They're probably my favorite of the bird species um, of them all. How do you I, cook them up? We either will uh, cook them up as like a real, real rare steak in the breast. So it's pretty rare or uh, cut them into like uh, finger steaks and fry them that way do fried finger steaks with the duck breast and they're really good well yeah. we've got a uh, two high mountain seasonings here on the table right the garlic rub and the venison rub and if somebody wanted to just start out with with that you mean they have hundreds of species oh, yeah. of recipes and, and different varieties and flavors from lime to chili to taco to well, you name it right but always in the cupboard is those two for absolutely that garlic rub i actually buy by the bulk i have like a five <laughs> pound bag in my house all the time i don't even buy the little bottles i because i go through so much of it drives my wife crazy but it's my one of my favorite things yep and on our youtube channel we've got some videos on how to use some of their products and we'll be having more this year we did a brisket with their brisket seasoning and that was that was awesome i've not tried that one yet it's good you gotta try it and then we did a spatchcock turkey with the poultry rub that was awesome too i do uh usually several hundred pounds of antelope and deer bratwurst and hot dogs every year mm. with their stuff and it makes fantastic hot dogs and bratwurst oh man so go to high mountain jerky's website h-i-m-t-n jerky.com to get your own stuff and they've got great starter kits too i mean you can buy a kit and try 10 different things you know or five different things they have different kits out there so give it a shot we we certainly love our high mountain don't we <laughs> all of us guys oh, yeah i do I, <laughs> I i have lots of it at the house 
and it you can't really go wrong i mean they're fish seasoning too i will say yeah it's wonderful man that western style trout with a pan fried trout or take it up into the mountains and put it on a brookie you know that you just caught it's pretty darn good the bayou bass on halibut is wonderful yeah it makes good fish tacos too we did that with walleye and crappie that stuff is awesome so mike this uh, new generation that's getting into the outdoors getting into hunting and fishing what's some uh, words of wisdom as they as they come in where's some info they can gather and get that would help them oh i think the biggest piece of wisdom after all the years i've hunted and stuff is uh don't get caught up on all the hype on the size of the horns go out there and do what you want to do and have fun it doesn't matter what someone else says if they don't think crossbow hunting's real better than compound hunting better than longbow hunting or better than a rifle or long range rifle if it's what you want to do and it's how you want to hunt them and it's legal and ethical, go have a good time. Take the animal you want to take and don't worry about whether someone says, oh, you could have shot a bigger one. It should have waited two years because it got older. Just go out and have fun. Same with fishing. Go have a great time. And the the fun will keep you addicted to it. It'll get your kids part of it. And it, it just makes the whole experience better. Yeah. So in other words, ignore the trolls. Absolutely. Ignore the trolls. Just, just have a good time. That's what it's about. It's about the, the life experience out there. Time with your family and just have a good time. And you said that really well. I think we should use that over and over again. It's like a soundbite to everybody that we talk to because really that's, and that's what perpetuates the sport is people truly enjoying themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You talk about it too. Like you, over time, I mean, it, part of the enjoyment for you is taking your kids and seeing your kids doing it now. Same with me. Disappointment is when expectations don't meet reality. Right. And so setting those expectations, you know, going out with a goal in mind, but keeping them open-minded and keeping it open-ended to where, you know, maybe today I'm just going to take pictures of mallards instead of harvest that big white tail buck. Right. You know, or maybe, yeah, I went on a goose hunt, but it was really cool to just see some cranes or see a bald eagle. Or I used to just, you know, there in Oregon, we drift boat fished for steelhead and did a whole bunch of waterfowl. And some days we didn't catch a steelhead and we didn't get any waterfowl. Still had a great day. Yeah, it's still a great time. I mean, yeah, you don't kill something or catch something every time you go out. It just don't work that way. You know, one of the things we decided to do with the taxidermy shop was, uh, Anybody that brings in an animal from a kid, um, we mount it 20% off right off the top. So we take, cool. which is quite a bit on the, you know, you take a big game head, you're talking quite a bit of money or even, you know, a full body mount or anything. And 20% off the top is quite a bit. But, we you know, we just committed the fact that if someone wants a, something a kid shot mounted, we're going to do our part to make it a little more affordable and a little better for him. That's awesome. Yeah, and it'll mean the world to that kid later. Right? Yeah, later in life, it does. It's you know that's something they look on twenty, thirty years later and go, oh, that was a that was a great time with my dad later. That's awesome. I I don't know. It's for me. I, I still have those memories of you know first big game hunts, you know first big fishing trips, and I'll never forget that stuff. I mean, it just sticks with you. And oh yeah, for it sure. Motivates you to take your own kids or you know grandkids or whatever to get them out there and do the same thing. I'd go as far as say my dad took me fishing on Prince of Wales twice in high school. I would have never moved to Alaska and I'd never moved here if I hadn't <laughs> gone on those fishing trips to Alaska. Right. Yeah, it's uh, definitely that influences something else um, that, to be able to have that family influence with your kids and to influence them to go on. And, and now to be able to do it with my grandkids is just an absolute ball. Yeah. So speaking of that, 
what are tips you would give to a grandparent or a parent if they're taking their kid fishing or hunting? You know, what are some keys to, to make that situation or that trip real memorable and enjoyable? Um, make it enjoyable. I think the things I learned, keep them warm, get them good products. I mean, you see people go out with a, you know, the nicest fishing gear they can get and the kids got a mickey mouse rod that won't cast six feet and they get frustrated with it i mean get them they don't you don't have to go buy them a 500 dollars fishing rod but buy them something that's going to work and keep it to a time frame that they want to be there remember you're there for their experience it's not all about you it's about it's about the experience for the kid and lots of snacks lots and lots of snacks because kids get hungry fast in the outdoors so drinks snacks keep it entertaining and don't try to keep them out there no longer than they want to be there when they're ready to go and they're done it's time to go and be done for the day so we need to do this real quick each of us should talk about the snack that we had when we went either hunting or fishing that we remember from kids so mike what do you think oh mine was always i think jerky was my favorite for the jerky from hunting season oh. and then later going duck hunting with my dad and having the jerky to go duck hunting with was a top of the line how about you we always had swedish fish and oatmeal pies on board. See, mine was, those oatmeal pies are really good. We had some of those too. <laughs> but we also did like Ritz crackers and cheese. Like yeah. it's just good stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, you can eat that anywhere and go fishing, hunting, whatever. It's now, good stuff. We got we had jerky too, but I never really got Swedish fish unless we were going on a fish. <laughs> so, we made fish. it really special, yeah. We also used to get Twizzlers every once in a while. I remember that. That was always yeah, fun. But that stuff makes it fun for the kids, the stuff that they don't get all the time. So you're going to go out fishing. You're going to go out antelope hunting for the day. And, you know, we took my granddaughter this year turkey hunting with us, and we went out for a day. And, you know, Wyoming's one of those fortunate states you can rifle hunt for turkeys. And so we uh, we just decided we're taking my five-year-old granddaughter out, me and my son, and we took snacks, and we went and found turkeys and called them in and to rifle range and shot them with her. And we had a great, great day, and she had a ball, and... Yeah, she we taught the game warden everything even when we got checked about turkeys that he didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. Yeah. Kids are so much fun. So what's on the horizon next? What's coming up? What's new? I'm working on the taxidermy shop, trying to get it uh, that business going a little more. Um, hoping to draw some good tags this year. Looking at another elk hunt. I uh, hopefully be off the whole month of September, do some hunting, take in some animals from some people. But I plan on being doing a lot of bow hunting, getting out and doing a little spring bear hunting this spring. And uh, my son and I have been talking about another Africa adventure probably 2024 go back and uh, kill some more planes game that i don't have yet sounds like a lot of fun to me we, we've already been chatting about some of that <laughs> yeah. well how does uh, somebody get a hold of you for the taxidermy taxidermy shop they can uh, email me at kentner taxidermy at gmail uh, give me a call at 307-851-1471 and all that information is on our facebook and instagram page under kentner taxidermy and do you have a website or is it just the I socials? do not have a website. Just okay, the socials so go right to the now. socials to yeah, find Yeah, go to the socials. Uh, you'll find me there. Um, that's the biggest thing right now. And then Rocky Mountain Sports has a little display down there with my information on it. Um, you can get a hold of stuff. I got cards kind of going around everywhere. Um, and if you need anything, just, yeah, let me know. And we can arrange a time to meet you. If I'm not already at the shop, we'll arrange a time to meet you at the shop and get the stuff taken care of. That sounds great. Well, really appreciate you coming back yeah. on. Want to get you back on, you know, after season and see how things went and see how tax memory's going. And Absolutely. It'd be fun to go. We can compare some bow hunting stories after the end of the season and if, see what happens. If I get out in, in September, yeah, I don't I don't know if I get the whole month off this year. But. <laughs> you better make time to get out. I kind of force my way into it every year. It's That's my, that's my time of year, and I, I'm going to go. 
Now we're, uh, you know, don't start a hunting company if you want to go hunting. That's my biggest piece of advice. Yeah, well, the taxidermy business is the key <laughs> pickup there too. But uh, fortunately, there is great freezers in the market. So people can freeze stuff. And uh, and I can run down and pick stuff up from people in the middle of hunting. I don't hunt that far from here. I think I'd have a freezer out front and a little tag drop box. I've actually thought about something <laughs> in that line to fill out the form, uh, drop it in code. the box. I'll get the deposit from you when you get back. And hope the power doesn't go out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a fear always. Yeah. Con, con the neighbor, pay a high school kid to, to come by and check on it. For, yeah, those for are those September. are all things we've talked about is, yeah, getting some high school kid that wants to learn a little bit and start doing a few mm-hmm. things and willing to, to take animals in and just fill out the log for the state and do some of that stuff too. So there's going to be some options. We're going to be available even though we're going to be hunting. The taxidermy shop will be available and we'll keep moving along with that. So we're not going to leave everybody without someone to bring their stuff to in the middle of hunting season. And we'll put your information in the show notes so people can find that at ragcastoutdoors.com. So we'll have all Mike's information there so you can get a hold of Mike if you want to utilize his services and get a fish done, get a bear done. Who knows? Absolutely. Yeah. Give me a call. Awesome. Well, it's been really great to have you on. Thanks again for taking the time. And, you know, folks, we're we're moving on up in episodes here. This is episode 77, and it's hard to believe that. I was I was going through stuff the other day, Mike, and I was looking back at where David and I started. We started fall of 2019. Can't believe it's 2022, and we're still doing this. We're still recording, still having fun, and meeting new people. Again, I would have never met you if we hadn't right. done this. So yeah. it's a lot of fun for us. And the way that people can help this show is we don't – put a whole bunch of money into marketing like some of these other podcasts. This is a grassroots deal. So if you know somebody who hunts or fishes, tell them about the podcast, show them how to download it on their phone, whether they're using Apple podcasts or Spotify, whatever podcast app they have, and just tell people about it. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. And we've got a little bit of everything for everybody, lots of different subjects. And you can go to both Spotify and Apple and rate the podcast, which helps us a bunch. And we do take five-star ratings. (laughs) Only five-star ratings. (laughs) But again, Mike, thanks for being on. And uh, we'll come back again soon with another episode of Radcast Outdoors. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.